Hi, everyone. It's Beth. Just a note about today's episode with Lyle Stern. The audio is not our typical quality, but I wanted to go ahead and post this episode anyway, because what Lyle has to say about the commercial real estate market in Miami is something everybody should hear. So turn up the volume just a tad and listen in as best as you can to get what Lyle Stern has to say. Thanks for your patience. This is Beth Butler, and thank you for listening to From the Ground Up, where we chat with people in and around the real estate industry. I have been in the real estate business for 35 years, and much of my experience has been about building the business from the ground up. And I'm pleased to share some of the people who I've met along the way and who have helped me build in this podcast. Welcome to this week's edition of From the Ground Up Podcast. Today we have Lyle Stern, who's going to talk to us about the commercial real estate outlook. Lyle is the president of Conover Stern Group, a dominant retail leasing and consulting company based in Miami Beach, Florida. Mr. Stern is more than a 20-year veteran of the real estate leasing profession. Conover Stern is best known locally for its leading role in developing the upper moderate retail category in South Beach by way of its recruitment of companies like Banana Republic, Kenneth Cole, Benetton, Starbucks Coffee Company, Guest Jeans, Limited Express, Victoria's Secret, Williams-Sonoma, and others, and most recently, H&M. However, Conover Stern's true focus is national, regional, regional and local representation of both retail tenants and developers. Conover Stern was responsible for bringing such world-renowned restaurants as Emeril Lagazzi, Mr. Chow, and Milos to Miami Beach. Lyle is frequently asked to speak about commercial real estate and is often quoted in newspapers and trade publications. He has been a member of Ocean Drive's Power List. He is very involved in the real estate community and in Miami Beach. His community involvement has included president of the Commercial Real Estate Association of Miami and the Beaches, member of the International Council of Shopping Centers, past president of the Police Athletic League. He's been on the board of directors for the Miami Beach Jewish Community Center, the Fraternal Order Police Associates, and he's been the president of Children's Craniofacial Association. He's a pillar member of the Miami Beach Chamber of Commerce, a founder of Oliver's Fund, which is um, in support of children that are deaf or hard of hearing at the University of Miami uh, Debbie School, board of directors of Miami Beach Taxpayers Association, committee member, Miami Children's Hospital Foundation. He lives in Miami Beach with his wife, United States District Court Judge Beth Bloom, and their three children. Please welcome to Friend the Ground Up, Lyle Stern from Conover Stern. Welcome, Lyle. Well, it's an honor to be here. Thanks for the introduction. You, you, are, you are quite accomplished, and I can't thank you enough for joining us today to talk a little bit about uh, the commercial real estate outlook, particularly in Miami and Miami Beach. First of all, let's go back a bit. Tell us, how did you get started in the real estate business? So I started with what seems like, like decades and decades ago in the residential real estate business in Miami Beach. And this was in the, in the early 80s when we didn't have the vibrant city that we have today, it's very much retirement. We had a much slower city at the time. And I never quite found my fit in my footing in residential 
commercial real estate. And tried doing some commercial real estate in the same firm. It didn't really click. There really were no commercial transactions on the beach to speak of. And at the time, a friend of mine had been hired by a company that was based in Miami called Roman International that was acquiring apartment buildings in college towns around the country that had certain criteria. And um, he, uh, he actually pushed me to apply for a sales job, so I was doing condominiums. And it turns out how small the world is. It turns out that Jerry Robbins and Joel Friedland, Jerry is Craig Robbins and Scott Robbins' uh, dad, uh, was the head of this company at the time. Bruce Kay hired me uh, to sell student condos in Gainesville at the University of Florida and project they developed. I found my footing there, and uh, from there they took out a project Colorado, went up and sold that out in another project in Tampa, Arizona. And from there, I joined another company that was also doing student condos in Statesboro, Georgia. At the time, I was 28 or so years old, and it was clear to me that I couldn't keep moving from college town to college town forever. As much fun as it was, uh, I decided that I really wanted to either come back to Miami Beach or, or to or go to Boulder, Colorado. And uh, my dad was in the art and antique and he convinced me to come back and, and work again in the art business, which I just really didn't enjoy at all and very quickly pivoted back to, uh, to real estate and, uh, and took a very, very, very small office in the, in the attic almost together on Lincoln Road. This is 30 years ago and decided that I was going to be in the commercial real estate business. And if there's one thing that I learned at Rolling that's super important is how to use a telephone as a sales tool much the way we use the internet today. And by developing a list of tenants that just weren't doing, you know, that weren't in Miami Beach at the time, uh, and by developing a dialogue and presentation to use over the telephone, I was able to very quickly make a new blockbuster video to do their first store in Miami Beach. And at the time, that was a big deal. So it gave me my first commercial deal, and it gave me a shopping center uh, to lease around. Blockbuster as an anchor. And I spent every weekend for months just driving strip centers because, again, there was no internet, developing a list of, of tenants and prospects and connecting with them. That was really my massive journey into, uh, into commercial real estate. So it all started with uh, the Blockbuster video in Miami Beach. Wow, based on what you're saying. I'm so struck by how much easier that process has to be today that you can literally just go to the internet and start looking up things, look up their number and call. That's got to reduce prospecting time by about 90%. Huge, it sounds huge, like. huge, huge, huge difference. But, you know, when we all went through something in our, in our early life in this business that, that trained us and taught us a skill set that, um, that we developed that, that allowed us, you know, to grow and expand. And uh, it also gave me something that I wouldn't have been able to get today, which was really a strong familiarity with Dave Broward and Pond Beach County, because in the course of two months, I must have driven every strip center, every original mall, every major intersection. I got to really understand the Tri-County area, which I hadn't before. I'm not so sure that that, that would have been the outcome uh, today for me if I did it all online. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think there's something about all that foot trap, doing all the work from from the bottom up that really makes a huge difference in knowing the inventory and knowing the product and really getting a firm footing that's obviously lasted you through a long career 
So if you don't mind, can we dive right into the current market? I've got a lot of questions around that. And I think that uh, our audience is going to be very interested in knowing. So high mar- high level, how has COVID impacted the commercial real estate market? I'm not so sure that we know the full answer to that yet. Um, I, I certainly don't. It has certainly eviscerated uh, the market as we know it for today. You know, how it rehabilitates is yet to be seen. But it's very much like trying to to understand the damage of a hurricane while the hurricane is still very much passing over you um, on so many levels. On one level, people have been trained to shop online, they've never shopped online before. Uh, on the other hand, people are, are concerned depending upon your, your age and demographic about being outside and being in contact with people, you know, whether it's going to a grocery store or going to a retail store. Um, so, that, you know, from the, from the personal consumer side, there are huge hurdles to now have to overcome. From the operational side of businesses, um, we have businesses that have opened and closed, and beaches that have opened and closed, and, and um, you know, restaurants that have <clears throat> opened and closed based upon you know, governmental orders. We've had massive disruption to travel into the area, in, in, ingress from whether it's Orlando or New York or California, you know, certainly overseas. So we've lost the background music in our South Florida market of international tourism and domestic tourism. We've lost all the business travel. We've lost all the conventions that were planned certainly for the foreseeable future. So every piece structurally of the retail world that doesn't occur online has been eviscerated and changed. How, How we recover from that and what that recovery looks like I think it's anybody's, it's anybody's guess, you know, how will people feel about going shopping in, you know, retail stores again, or sitting in restaurants again, whether they're indoors or outdoors, and what will it take to create a degree of normalcy? Will there be a vaccine? How long will the vaccine have to be in the market? Um, and I think that, you know, a good portion of the problem is that in moments like this, it's very difficult for retailers to make decisions about long-term capital. So if you're a retailer and you're watching your online sales, um, I'm sorry, if you're a retailer and you're watching your brick and mortar sales uh, going from whatever they were close to zero right now, and you've had to lay off all your staff and you've had to spend tremendous capital to reopen stores and rehire staff in an uncertain environment of, you know, will there be another curfew? Will there be another shutdown? Will there be a second wave? What will tourism, you know, look like? Will you know people live in a community and go out and and shop? How often? You know, most most stores don't even have fitting rooms open um, right now. So it, it's very difficult to assess the damage, which by all accounts is substantial. But it's also difficult to assess the rehabilitation period coming out of this, and when there's a great normalcy in terms of Travel and entertainment and dining out and shopping, and how quickly do people migrate back into the to the market? So it, it's a long answer that I could sum up by saying it's not true. Yeah, there's so many questions still to be determined, so many uncertainties that still need to be firmed up before I think we can really see. Have you seen an immediate impact into retail? So shopping centers were closed, retail stores were closed. Everything other than grocery stores, for the most part, closed. Banks were closed. Hotels were closed. So there was this this kind of cover 
over everything. And then the cover got lifted a few short weeks ago in a limited way in terms of how people could shop, how people could dine out, um, how people could travel. Um, and, and I think that you know this all also occurs in an environment where, where people are concerned, for the most part, general statement, about their income, you know, whether it's hotel workers or, or office workers or uh, retail workers or people that own you know, commercial real estate uh, because either rents weren't coming in mortgage still have to be paid. It was so structural um, and, and against the backdrop of, of no sales, and now that stores have begun to open, sales are still substantially below where they were. Now, there may be some outliers to that. There may be a store in the design district or a store in Aaron Mall or a store on Lincoln Road that is close to its pre-COVID levels, but it's a general statement. It's not. Um, and I think we're a while away from that. Do, do you think this is somewhat related that is there, and I've read a lot of articles lately about people getting, growing accustomed to doing more online shopping. Do you think that there'll be a longer term impact of more people sort of sticking with online and minimizing or doing lesser amounts of retail? Without doubt. I think part of it is also demographic and psychographic. So I think that, our 14-year-old daughter, as much as she enjoys shopping online, also enjoys the experience of being in a retail store, as does my wife, who, when she maybe didn't go shopping online, still wants from the day that she can return to a retail store to actually touch the fabric and, and try clothes on. Um, so I think a lot of that is going to come back. I also think that, that what will happen will be nationally, probably internationally, there will be some shrinkage, notable shrinkage, in brick-and-mortar presence. A lot of stores, no matter how healthy they were before, and certainly if they weren't healthy before, will need to, either need to or want to, close stores where they have too many stores in the same geographic region that they certainly don't need those number of stores anymore, uh, or where their footprint may be too large, right? We went through an era five, six, seven years ago, eight years ago, where Lots of companies were creating flagship stores, and that was really before what we knew about online sales, what they knew about online sales. So I think we'll see shrinkage in the size of stores, shrinkage in the number of stores. And then the question will become, well, what areas significantly benefit from, from that mechanical interruption to the normal retail bricks and mortar? So, so I think that really ties into my next question, which is, do you feel like any area is more adversely affected or not? I do. I think that, um, generally speaking, I think that suburbs will find it a bit more difficult than certain product types, meaning that um, we'll, we'll see certainly many more local tenants in suburbs also find that the one upside maybe that there's some tenants that we're speaking to these days that would prefer to be out of the front high streets and look to locate uh, in the suburbs where there's a much more stable um, uh, pool of buyers not subject to the fluctuation of travel, climate, tourism, etc. And then I think in, in the high the high streets certainly will will suffer but adapt. I think if you look at the high streets around the country, I think that um, we use one that I'm very familiar with, which is Lincoln Road. I think what we'll see, and we're already seeing it, is that tenants that over the past few years haven't been able to enter a 
as an example, because the rents were just high, both in terms of rents and occupancy costs, real estate taxes, etc. There's been an uptick in interest from tenants that we wouldn't have seen two or three years ago because the rents were too high. And um, as much as we would have liked to have entered the market here, it would have been unaffordable. Now what we're seeing is that tenants would have that would perhaps normally gone to other places in Miami just because the, the rents were, were cheaper, um, are now shifting and pivoting and looking at places like um, and, and I think that, that the big benefit there is that uh, you'll see the same thing in Coconut Grove as well. I think the big benefit there is that these areas, which are neighborhood and noble and service of a large community, but also have the backdrop of uh, you know, corporate space, daytime population, um, elevated tourism, will benefit. I think a lot of other areas all over Florida, and certainly all over the county, where Stores moving forward would not be looking uh, to go. I think that those areas will suffer. So, if I can put you on a spot for just a minute, and you know, I live I live in Kendall, and the falls. I live probably five minutes from the Falls Shopping Center, and I look at that, and it's a beautiful outdoor shopping center, always done relatively well. Has now lost both of its anchor tenants. What do you think will happen in, in, in like a mall situation like that? It's a great question. So part of it is, is, is zoning answer, meaning that perhaps the best use of space is not to have this 150,000 square foot department store anymore, but rather to go vertically into really the creative office space or first class office space or residential, uh, whatever product type is more appropriate, and really use the verticality, which does two things, better use of the ground for the real estate and also imports on a daily basis and customer use that, that the rest of the center benefits from. So versus simply replacing it with another 100 or 150,000 square foot tenant, which you may see whether it's you know, a large health club or some kind of entertainment experience, I think you'll see the desire to vertical on some of these larger boxes. The question is, is in, in, you asked the right question, which is not only large box, but will there be enough smaller boxes to go around and, you know, what will the rents be, you know, moving forward? And, you know, the impact that I worry about that is that as the rental market will, will be a bit stagnant and as rents will likely come down a bit, there still is the debt service coverage, the amount of you know, leverage that, that tends to be on, on the former parties of these commercial properties. So part of the structural you know, impact, there I say collapse that, that I worry about, is the disparity between what the tenants can afford to pay moving forward at a bricks and mortar stores, at least for a while, um, and the debt service and the lenders and what relationship will there be between the landlord, the lender, and the tenant? Because that all has to work for there to be a recovery as well. Yeah, so, so true, so true. So I just think it was really interesting to think through what you said about the falls. Of course, Sunset Place comes to mind. Right, how many times iterations that's gone through in that life of that mall never really had an anchor store, but it has diverted itself. It's always had a residential component, but now there's offices there. Um, I guess Cocoa, Cocoa Walk is another example. So this change to more mixed use from strictly retail to drive traffic and make the retail a little bit more impactful. Is that is that a fair 
summarization? Yes, partly. I think that, to use an antiquated term, I think that centers like, like uh, Sunset Shops is a good example of you know, talent centers, which is kind of an antiquated term in the industry now, are, are also located where there's tremendous need for denser development. So I think that the plan that they have for Sunset Shops to densify it with, with retail and with some and with some office, possibly hotel, is a great move, right? It will, not only does it bring more bodies to, to the shopping experience, but it densifies this kind of node in South Miami with Royal Gables and everything around. I think we'll see the same thing at Dayland Mall. I think we'll see the same thing at the Falls. Um, you know, a lot of these larger regional malls that have boxes like you know, Sears or JCPenney or Nordstrom, um, where those tenants have either, you know, gone chapter or going chapter or Nordstrom case are simply closing the number of stores they have, create an opportunity to reassess the real estate and create some verticality on that. I think we'll see more of that. I think you'll see that in, in the urban core as well. When we look at, you know, places like uh, Miami Beach, you know, Miami Beach did with Washington Avenue several years ago, create this zoning overlay district to, to allow hotels to be developed in Washington Avenue had the benefit of eliminating the rear spaces of larger buildings that were unleasable, creating density in daytime uses, and by shortboxing the deeper real estate, creates better retail leasing opportunities. I think that's true in malls and you know better quality streets and, and urban environments. Okay, that's great. So I guess that leads to that. What are you seeing about other segments of commercial real estate. Do you think they'll be impacting long-term office space kind of pops to mind as, as, as probably one of those other bigger bubble areas that's sitting out there waiting to see what's going to happen. Do you have any comments on other segments of the market? So I, I, I what I know is what I read. We, we don't, we don't do any office leasing uh, to a fault. Um, but what I'm looking at systemically around the country is that, for the most part, and this may all change, right? We're still very much in a moment in time. Um, you know, I remember after after 9-11, no one, no one wanted to fly here, but I was flying again. So I think it's the same analogy going back to office space. Will people, you know, with, with, with Zoom and some of the other uh, devices that are now available, and the larger employers allowing um, you know, office workers to work remotely, and there's a huge benefit because they can theoretically shrink the size of their office footprint, which leads to a greater reduction in cost, which leads to a greater reduction in travel, which has environments to the environment, environments, uh, you know, uh, big benefits to, to family life, etc. Does that whole office leasing paradigm shift? And if it shifts, you know, not only is the is the office product itself at some degree of risk. By the way, I'm saying if because we don't, I don't know enough about the office leasing development world, but if that shifts, then, you know, what's the impact on, in major cities, you know, subway and mass transit office buildings, and what's the impact on the dumping donuts to Starbucks and the subway that's on, you know, subway uh, restaurants is at the top of that subway stop that's, you know, close to a major employment sector where, you know, tens of thousands of people are commuting to on, on the subway every day. So these these questions have such huge structural impact um, moving forward. And the same also for hotel. If there's less travel because people are holding meetings remotely, what's the impact on the business hotel development market? 
you know, if, if thousands of fewer people are traveling a day, by the way, I say if because I don't know if this is going to happen, then what's the impact structurally on airlines and on you know, hotels and on Ubers from the airport, etc.? So each one of these questions has a cascading effect that we've yet to understand. Yeah, it, it's hard to tell. I mean, I just think of personally, you know, where compasses and I, we've reopened our offices here in South Florida to allow agents to come in, you know, to come in and come back to work. Staff is not reported back um, and probably won't until September, but agents were anxious to get back in and start working out of the office. And it's just been interesting to see that even with it open, people aren't really utilizing the office as much as they were beforehand. I don't know if that's a permanent shift or if it's a temporary shift. It is summer in South Florida too, right? So a lot of people are leaving town, taking it easy. Plus, you open, you close, you open, you close. Business is good. It's not your phone's ringing off the hook. It stops. Everything seems very extreme one way or the other right now. So it's hard to tell if we can glean any long-term perspectives. But it does look sound like, at least from what I hear and talking to quite a few people, that they are really reconsidering office space, how much they have, if they're going to use it, and where it might likely be located. And I think that's the the other, I, I read an interesting article, how they think that the office space out in suburban areas will fare better than in the urban areas, because even when people go back to work, they really won't want to be dealing with the commute. Or they could be in an outline, you know, they might only have to... Uh, be remote one or two days a week and come into a local office or service center. So it'll be interesting to see how that all changes. But I do think that we will have some long-term impacts. And it sounds like you do too. Um, just don't know what they'll be quite yet. I agree with you. I, I have no interest in riding an elevator in a big class A office building in some urban apartment right now. We opened our office back up. We're in a four-story uh, elevator building and mandated that one person in an elevator at a time, even in our office, you know, we require that everyone wear a mask unless they're at their desk and all the desks are segregated, uh, meaning that everybody has workstations behind a wall with a door that they can close. Um, and I think it's uncomfortable for people. And I think that especially in our industry, the industry that you and I are in, we can do so much of what we do online, right? In, in your world, it's well, what happens when you get ready to show a house? How does that occur? My world is how do I put a real estate rep from a retail company in my car and drive a market, which, which we've done. And you know we're each wearing you know two masks, and it's 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 uncomfortable. It's certainly you know utilitarian. You get the job done, but it's but it's certainly uncomfortable. Yeah, and unfortunately, in the last thirty days ago or so, has proved to be dangerous. Most of our uh, our agents and that are. Uh, that have been sick or gotten the virus have gotten them by showing property sort of been the common denominator. So even with the mask and social distancing, it doesn't seem whether, you know, whether that's actually what happens or not, it does seem that real estate agents are still at risk by even doing an awkward showing. Right. But we've got to do it. We've got to continue to move forward. And, but that's, it's just been amazing to see how that happens. So we've gone back to recommending 
do virtual if at all possible and try and minimize those showings again, especially right now when we're repeaking and cases are up again and we seem to be moving in the wrong direction. So hopefully we'll get past this and get back to some sort of feeling like people feel comfortable looking and being there and showing property again, but you're right, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're gonna be back in the office. Do you have any forecast for the rest of 2020? What do you think it's gonna look like? So I was a lot more optimistic before, before the last uh, or this recent uptick in cases in Miami. I think that, that people tend to make long-term plans in a market like Miami, certainly in terms of coming into the market. So um, the cancellation of business meetings, conventions, so forth, all over the day for our economy, the impact on, on Southeast Florida um, from, from the travel and business markets obviously impacts restaurant, retail, hotel, etc. So I, I think that's, that's certainly uncertain. Um, I think a lot, you know, I'm hopeful that in the fall there's either compression of cases and comfort in travel that comes from that compression, you know, comfort in travel that comes from appropriate risk management by both the, the customer on, on an airplane and the, the airline industry itself. You know, hopefully that, that works in tandem. Um, I think that a lot of my forecast, which is really just Miami-based, has so much to do with where the number of cases um, are. The other thing that I think will be important is what's the weather in the Northeast, because we're, we're very driven by Northeast weather. So in, in a typical year, if there's an, an early winter in New York and you know, it's, it's freezing cold by the end of September, um, then we see our season starting earlier. Um, if the season starts later and it's still beautiful in New York in October, then there's less of an interest in people from the Northeast coming to Miami early. So uh, I say half and jest, actually half and truth as well. Every year, Rosh Hashanah, I find myself you know, praying for icebergs in the Hudson as soon as possible in the year because it starts, <laughs> it, uh, it starts our, our year off. So I think, you know, I, I think that there are just a lot of factors in any one of them create a fulcrum point that can change our trajectory for a short period of time in the next three months. That's a great way to put it. I, you know, we were in the residential world, we were seeing a real uptick in New York buyers. And then when they put the travel restrictions on the people coming back from South Florida now have to quarantine, it kind of fell off a cliff again. So I, I do expect that that demand, like always, is strong. New York to South Florida and hope that once we get where we can lift those travel restrictions again, we'll start seeing more and more people come, even in the summer, because I think everybody is still very interested in doing something in Florida. So that's it's a hopeful, it's a hopeful forecast on my part, but I think that there's there's some real there's a basis for it. And we do see to seem to have already started it, just got interrupted here for a little while. Hopefully it'll pick back up when we get on the other side of this little spike we have. We're, we're hearing a lot, <clears throat> incidentally, of, of both the owners and renters from the Northeast moving down for next year, many with, with kids that have already you know, enrolled them in private schools and public schools and are renting homes in everywhere from Palm Beach to, to you know, Coral Gables, Pinecrest, uh, and made an election to get out of the city, out of New York City for, for next year. You know, most of those folks will also be ancillary office space while they're here. So, you know, that could be a little silver lining 
this cloud, and I was going to ask you to, to just confirm that that's what, what you're saying as well. It, definitely, I think it's um, it's it's not just people with uh, school age children. I think it's a lot of things. Number one, feel like people, if they want to go, they're anticipating another quarantine as we go into the fall, because that's what you know all the media is telling us, right? This is gonna it's gonna it's gonna kick up again, no matter where you, no matter where you are. And I think that there's a large contingency of people that want to be in number one, more space, and then a space that has good, good outdoor space, right? So I think that's certainly South Florida fits that bill. So what we do see selling are larger condos, oceanfront um, houses, single family houses. We are, we have that trend where people are leaving condos to go to houses. So the single family house market has become very short as of late because of the demand from out-of-towners plus the demand from people that might have been renting or owned a condo in, say, downtown Miami and now want to move to a house because they don't want to quarantine in a 50-story high-rise with, you know, in a one-bedroom apartment anymore. So I do think that it has, at least in the short term, changed what buyers are looking for in residential real estate, and we do have an increased demand. Maybe they're not going to live here, but they want to be able to have that place to escape to in the event this happens again, where they'll be a little bit more comfortable than they might have been in these last 90 days. So we'll see. I, when the travel ban lifts, we'll see how many more people are still out there, but the demand so far has been fairly strong. I guess Lincoln, Lincoln Road's always been an attractive uh, proposition for international and New York travelers as well. And I know you've been super involved with Lincoln Road. How did that happen? So I bought um, my first building on Lincoln Road almost 30 years ago. And through the last 30 years, have uh, owned and sold uh, other buildings and other opportunities here. We got very involved in, in leasing when we started our, our leasing company as well. Um, so it was actually incidental, but when I bought my first building, it was because my uh, my dad uh, needed warehouse space, and I was doing a real estate project in Georgia at the time, and he was looking at warehouse space um, west of 95 and north of 195, and he would typically close his gallery at Fountain after midnight, and then he would go to warehouse space. It would be much better if he just had something closer and, and safer. And um, I had read an article in the Miami Herald when I was in, in town visiting about a warehouse developer from, uh, from Kendall from West Highland, and Doran Jason. And Doran started buying buildings on Lincoln Road because at the time they were cheaper than warehouse space in Hialeah. So I said, yeah, why don't you just buy a building on, on Lincoln Road and, and, and put your uh, right your there and use that as warehouse space? My dad was, never really wanted to buy real estate, so I ended up buying the building. He became a tenant. I made him a as well. I was really high about the first building here. So it was coincidental because he needed storage space. And then once I really got into the commercial business and realized the opportunity that the road could be, um, I fell in love with the street for, for many, many reasons. Um, and as time has gone on, Lincoln Road has, has evolved. Certainly we're now 30 years later and getting ready for the next major metamorphosis of Lincoln Road. Uh, 
It's a great capital improvement plan that's been designed approved by the same team that designed the pipeline in New York. It's quite spectacular. Um, and Lincoln Road, as it's matured over the last you know, 30 years, went from being a big derelict to having trains on it, used the shuttle and the elderly back and forth, to being the super hot spot, to now kind of gentrifying and becoming you know, more national tenants. And some would, some would say it's lost um, its flair, its excitement, it, its edge. But meanwhile, well, it may be true, we also had pre COVID about 11 million people a year some incredible sales levels in the stores and the restaurants that were here. But with that said, it, it, it was and is ready for uh, its, its next evolution. And uh, with the James Corner plan, the folks that have highlighted, uh, the plan is very exciting. And I, I look at Lincoln Road much less as, as a retail street. It happens to be an amazing public space, a million square feet of public space. It just has the benefit being lined on both sides by restaurants and, and retail, having a convention center block with a brand new beautiful convention center, and soon have a convention center retail by which will be the, the Grand Hyatt, and the ocean on one side of the bay on the other. And we, we look at this spectacular public space and spectacular assemblage of botanical installations uh, up and down Lincoln Road, which um, needs to be curated and loved and appropriately maintained. Um, and also has the benefit of the New World Symphony and, and the drama. Um, so I think what you'll see happening on Lincoln Road, and we saw it last year, is kind of like this, this real nod towards public space culture. The New World Symphony played a uh, Eagles concert on, on Lincoln Road. Last year we had a spectacular uh, installation of these beautiful monumental Botero sculptures. Uh, this year there's a spectacular Keith Herring installation planned, uh, as well as some, some other art um, that's being planned for Lincoln Road and a new venture that but I don't want to give any insight to the New World Symphony that I think would be super exciting. So I, I'm excited that we're in this urban environment that, unlike, unlike any other urban environment in South Florida, has this program cultural component. I, I would ask this that by just saying that the, you know, the only other district to be fair is, is, uh, is the design district. Craig is doing a spectacular job with the really rest of on doing their concert service. And similar to that, uh, I think you'll see this level of culture, art, music, uh, live performance, uh, all occurring on, uh, on Lincoln Road. So it's been a great 30-year ride, and, and I'm looking forward to uh, the next 30 um, Lyle, where could people find those proposed capital improvements for Lincoln Road? Is there a site online? There is. You can simply Google Lincoln, Lincoln Road uh, Master Plan or Lincoln Road Redevelopment Plan. But what I'll do is I'll send you the link as well. Uh, okay, perfect. And we'll put it in the show notes so that people can click and find. I mean, I looked at them actually uh, probably a couple weeks ago when I uh, was first sent you these questions. And I looked and I was I was amazed. I mean, I knew it was coming. I just really hadn't seen it graphically represented. And it's just very, very impressive. Um, what do you think about the current tenant mix and rental rates? I mean, I know for a while, you know, it, it, they got they, they got very high. And um, 
this idea of having a, a store on Lincoln Road was not really about making profit. It was about, you know, being seen. Uh, and, and, and it seemed that occupancy fell quite a bit. Can you talk through that and kind of where we are today? Sure. So Lincoln Road um, has historically, let's say historically, certainly the last 15 years, um, high store sales numbers, right? So retailers, and there, there may be the odd retailer out is looking for places to have a presence. We don't necessarily see that on Lincoln Road so much. People really come here because they, they want to have sales. And given the, the success of Lincoln Road, um, retailers wanted to be here because the store sales were quite high. We have an incredibly successful uh, high-grossing app, an incredibly successful high-grossing Nike, Victoria's Secret, uh, Lemon, and so on. Um, but what happens, and we see this happening everywhere in the country, is as areas get super hot, there, the, the, the nationals tend to force out because A, they can afford more rent, and B, those landlords prefer them for the most part because of their credit. That they have a comfort level taking down the debt on buildings because they know that you know, Nike or Apple uh, is on the list. And we, we see this happening, whether it's you know, Soho or you know, almost any market that you can point to uh, in the United States. The same thing happened on Lincoln Road, where, and by the way, some people would tell you, gee, it's great because I want to go to Victoria's Secret and have a cool night, and I want these things in my backyard, but I also want that kind of cool one-off store. And typically, the cool one-off store can't necessarily afford it, right? They get pushed out, and that becomes the seed, pollen, if you will, that goes and pollinates the next neighborhood. So while Lincoln Road was 30 years ago, a very artsy community, Rents got very high, property values grew. South Florida Art Center, which was one of the strong backbones of art and culture on Lincoln Road, sold their buildings, right? Took their chips off the table, if you will, for you know, almost $90 million, and they can take that money and reinvest it in their building, their new flagship uh, in Little River. So as these markets you know, gentrify and become more national, it leads to the growth of the next neighborhood. You know, the comeback of Coconut Grove, the the evolution of Wynwood and the evolution of Little River. But I think Lincoln Road is very much now on the stage, and really because of COVID, that we're seeing this flattening of rents and, and reduction in rents um, that, as I mentioned before, has allowed tenants that would love to enter the South Florida market on Lincoln Road. And that are these, you know, kind of one-off or two-off, you know, cool tenants, or you know, maybe they're, they're quote-unquote national. You know, they're what I call the acceptable national brands because they speak to the millennials and there's something super cool about them. You know, picture Warby Parker when they only had five stores as an example. Um, you know, a beloved tenant today, are they a national tenant? Of course, because of the number of stores they have. But at one point in time, they weren't a national tenant, but they were beloved in the neighborhoods they went into. I think that's the stage that you're going to see like the road go through now. I think you'll see some, some tenants leave, partly because. You know, some are going, you know, chapter, they're taking chapter 11 in COVID. Um, some tenants will, will uh, renegotiate their leases to stay on Lincoln Road. And when a, when a tenant goes chapter, it's, it's universal. So they get the right to you know, close the stores that they want to close wherever they are, or leave the stores that they want to leave wherever they are in a newly negotiated rent that's acceptable to the land. Obviously, I'm oversimplifying it. But I think you're going to see with that closing and some of the vacancies on Lincoln Road, that the rents will come down and allow uh, 
some new tenants. I'm into Lakin Road. The, the piece that has to change structurally on Lakin Road, though, uh, are the real estate taxes. Because depending upon when you buy your building and how much you pay for it, the real estate taxes on Lakin Road can be you know, 70 $80 a foot. And when that's the real estate tax before the, you know, collecting $1 rent to pay mortgage or pay expenses, it's just too high. And what's kept tenants away have also been uh, higher real estate taxes and insurance costs. So I think we're going to see all that change a little bit. By the way, the same thing, you know, design district, Wynwood, the Grove, whenever there's new capital acquisition in a heated market at higher rates, the real estate taxes go up. And um, I would tell you that structurally, these emerging districts, one way to, to keep them interesting and exciting is to find some way to cap have you seen that work in other places? Is there an example you can cite? Um, I would say that there's a great example that there's certainly models. And, and I think that, you know, in, in my mind, we should be creating a model where we allow these emerging districts to kind of survive without increased real estate taxes just simply because there's been a transaction, right? To, to, to take a legacy owner who was maybe on this building, let's use Wynwood as an example, so they've been on the building 20 years ago where your real estate taxes are $5 a foot and get sold to ABC Corp for a huge amount of profit, granted, for the legacy owner, but now the real estate taxes go to $25 a foot. Um, how do you maintain the coolness of an area where you want to keep rents a little lower to keep interesting local tenants there or artists there when the real estate taxes alone are, are at such a high level. Now, someone argue, well, we don't have a state sales tax, so I mean, personal income tax in Florida says this is what happens, but there has to be some balance between the municipalities and the ownership entities and the districts to determine what do they want their communities to look like. And, you know, you can try to legislate use, I think it's a lot harder. It's been done, it's done in some communities, not many, where you know, uh, a story that has more than, I'm making this up as I go, but a story that has more than 10 units, you know, can't go onto a certain street. Carmel, California comes to mind when they passed a lot. I haven't reviewed it in, in many, many years, so it may have a long, but if you have more than 10 units, you can at least go to Carmel uh, as an example. But that also has, has a growth compression impact. It doesn't allow tendencies to change either the communities to become older vestiges of themselves. So I think it starts with a conversation of orientation, goal orientation in the community. What do we want our street to be like? Now, Lincoln Road is an example. It's this massive public street, million square feet of public landscape space. Um, so I think it's also a community asset, but You've got owners, same in Wynwood, same in Design, same in Growth, that have invested, you know, or are investing hundreds of millions of dollars in acquisition rehab on their buildings. But when real estate taxes go up so high, the rent becomes unsustainable. And I think we've learned in COVID that the real estate model is a very fragile model. <laughs> that's, that's certainly true. That's certainly true. What kind of impact has the convention center had on Lincoln Road? So it's only been open for a year since it was uh, since it was recently renovated, and it was set to have a huge impact. Uh, the, the convention center uh, 
was the will of the city and the commission and great leadership. It went from being basically a, a, a trade show facility to a meeting show facility because meeting shows bring in people for you know, days on end versus just trade shows where people might be commuting from their local, uh, local communities. And also the, the daily spend is much higher in hotels and in restaurants and in retail, etc. So we began to see the positive uptick of the bookings of the convention center. And then, of course, the announcement of the uh, uh, successful uh, RFP with uh, Jackie Sofer and uh, David Martin uh, developing the convention center hotel. So two spectacular local developers that have great reputational backgrounds, big commitments to the, to the art world, to quality, and they'll be building the Grand Hyatt Hotel to anchor the convention center. In order to appropriately build the convention center, uh, one needs to have a convention center hotel uh, so that there are enough rooms that can be delivered so meeting planners don't have to go through the whole community and you know, get 100 rooms there and 50 rooms there and 100 rooms there. So this was solving for, for part of that issue and then of course COVID came so it will be a, uh, a distraction. From what I've heard so far, all the shows that were uh, booked uh, will just be rebooking. So we, lo you know, we lost, uh, the city lost several meaningful uh, conventions. Right now we're all waiting to see what will happen with uh, our positive circle being moves forward. Fair enough, fair enough. Well, thank you. So in closing, we would call this podcast is From the Ground Up. So we like to do a quick lightning round of questions so that our audience gets to know you and how you grew from the ground up. You ready? Right. Okay. Where were you born? New York City. Birth order? Second and last. Okay. Second and last, older brother or sister? Older sister. Older sister. What's your academic background? Uh, so I went to U of M for one year, and I left to go into business. <laughs> okay. Who was your best teacher? You know, in so many ways, my best teacher is my wife. That's nice. What was your first job? Not out of college or anything, but like your first job of life. My very first job was selling peanuts at the roller derby. No, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Selling peanuts at the wrestling. It used to be at the where Jackie Gleason is now every Wednesday night. <laughs> I, I, I bet a lot of people listening don't even remember that. I do. That that does go back a ways, but that's that's fun. I don't think I've ever talked to anybody that worked there. That had to be interesting. Did you love it? Great, I loved it. It was great, and it made some money. Okay, Lyle, best mentor. Anyone come to mind? Three: Jerry Robbins, Bruce Kay, and my current business partner, Bruce Kleiner. Tell us about your current family status. Uh, I am blessed to be married to the same woman for twenty-seven years. Uh, my wife is a uh, spectacular warm, loving, human being, and the smartest woman I know. Um, and we have three, uh, three children. Our oldest son graduated uh, University of Pennsylvania, uh, May of 19, with degrees from the, both the college and the board, and uh, joined the Peace Corps at uh, college. It was disrupted by COVID. Uh, now I'm joining the Meritorium this year, start law school next fall. Uh, our middle son is currently a Rising sophomore at the University of Pennsylvania, studying uh, political science and history. 
and our daughter will turn 15 in just a few days, and it's a rise in temporary working on our house. That's great. Very nice. Where do you live, and what do you like best about your home? So we live on the Venetian Causeway. We've been there for about 20 years. Uh, I love being on the water. I sit outside off here in the morning and watch the sun rise, and it's just a spectacular way to start our day. I love the fact that our home is, is uh, a mile and a half from my office, maybe two and a half miles from our office. Uh, so our commute to, uh, to where we work is close. I love the fabric of the South Beach community. I love the fabric of the nations. I'm connectivity to downtown Miami at the South Beach. I love when we get on our bikes and go to the Grove or the South Point Park or Bell Harbor. Um, I think we're very, very fortunate. I think I know very, very fortunate to be blessed to live in such a beautiful place and such a beautiful city. And community. We live in a beautiful community. Yeah, it, it, it doesn't get much better than that. So when you can pull yourself away, what's your favorite vacation spot? You know, I wish I had one. Um, I you know, can't really haven't traveled enough to know where my absolute favorite spot is yet to go. Fell in love with Spain. We fell in love with Japan. Uh, last summer, uh, did a boys trip and we went diving with, uh, with humpback whales in French Polynesia. Um, but I, I don't think I found our favorite spot yet. There are lots of places we love to go. I love going to Aspen, but I love Colorado. Uh, but I'm still searching for our favorite place. Good. I like that. Still looking for your favorite place. More travel to come. What is your morning routine? So we get up, we, we take our dogs, we go out in the backyard, they run around, I make coffee, we have coffee outside, uh, we read the paper, catch up, watch a little bit of the news, uh, and then it's off to the races. We both have pretty, uh, pretty busy lives. Uh, the last few months have been interesting because of COVID, all of our kids have been home. The two older ones were away, but all of our kids have been home. So that's nice. What do you consider your biggest failure and your best success? Um, my biggest failure is probably two. Not, not taking chances, not taking calculated chances, playing it too carefully. Uh, and my biggest success is, is learning from my mistakes and not being and being and being willing to take um, chances. So my, my biggest failure being not taking enough chances and my biggest success taking chances leads me in an interesting place. But I think learning from my mistakes and 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 always being able to acknowledge my mistakes um, are the two most important things in, in my in my practice. Understanding. Do you have any aspirational goals, something you'd like to achieve, attain, learn a new language, write a novel? What, any big aspirations outside of your work-related ones? I would like to travel more. I would like to see much more of the world than, than I have so far. I'd like to do much more. I'd love to scuba dive. I'd love to do much more diving in many, many more places. But I would just love to travel the world with my wife and kids. And there's so many places that what, what, where's the first place you're going to go when it's okay to travel? It would either be Australia and New Zealand or Africa. I agree. Fun places to go. What was your favorite part of quarantine? 
day together. We were, I don't know the next time that we'll have all three of our children uh, together for this extended period of time, or that they'll be together for this extended period of time. And that's what we're that's been a big answer. I think a lot of people appreciated the family time. So lastly, Lyle, and thank you for taking the time today to talk about the commercial real estate market. Where can people, what's the best way for people to connect with you? So my cell is great, 305-785-3863. Or uh, my email address is Lyle, L-Y-L-E, at KSGRP, KSGRP. Okay, and again, I'll put that and the Lincoln Road uh, capitalization plan link on the site notes just so that um, people can connect with you. And again, thank you so much, Lyle. I appreciate I Maybe we'll have to talk again mid-fall to see where we are with uh, retail especially and how it's uh, recovering after we can at least open the stores back up again. I look forward to it. I, I can't thank you enough for this opportunity. Beth, I want to acknowledge you for your leadership and the compass and what, what, what you and your whole company brought to this community. Well, thank you, Lyle. I, I appreciate it. And uh, we're, we, I think we're all sort of trying to figure this out together. So thank you again for your input and your experience and helping us guide through the commercial real estate market. This episode of From the Ground Up was sponsored by Feather the Nest, the crowdfunding source for all of your real estate needs. Why register for silverware when you can start your way to owning or renting your own home? Please sign up for your nest at www.featherthenest.com. A special thanks to my extraordinary producer, Sohail Fazluddin, who has made this podcast possible.